Our scripture passage today is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds then appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the field, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds is the son of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who has sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and law, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Expectations matter, right? Attainable, realistic expectations are important for our emotional, even mental well-being. The converse is also true. Unmet, unrealistic expectations can lead to a number of problems in a number of areas in our lives, whether it's with our marriage or perhaps with our children, our work, our achievements or lack thereof. It would seem that more often than not, reality doesn't measure up to our expectations, thus leading to discouragement, sometimes anger, sometimes just giving up. And this is true in how we're to think about gospel ministry as well. For anyone who takes living for Jesus seriously and seeks to live their life on mission for Christ, we have a number of struggles that we have to deal with regularly, don't we? Things like, Jesus, I know you're king. Why can't my friend who I've been sharing the gospel with, why can't he see it? Jesus, if you're king, why are more people not bowing down to you in worship? Why does the world seem to be getting worse? How does that fit with you being king? Jesus, we know you're king. Why are you not working in my child's life on the timetable that I would like to see you working? And it would seem to me, from our sermon text this morning, that Jesus understands we're going to struggle with these kinds of things, and thus the parable that we're looking at today is all about helping us to manage our expectations in the spiritual realm. Specifically, Jesus is using this teaching tool to help us manage our expectations with the kingdom of God and its growth. See, unrealistic expectations here could lead us to get discouraged rather quickly even grow weary 
in our living on mission. But realistic expectations help us with clarity as to what our Lord tells us we can expect, which I think keeps us in the game for the long haul. So this is important. If you're not already there, I do invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the parable known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, This parable is found in verses 24 through 32, and then later, and he doesn't do this with all of his parables, he gives us an explanation down in verses 36 through 43. But before we jump into the text itself, I, I, I do want to take a minute, since we're not doing a series through Matthew, and I want to just set this in its context. We're in Matthew 13, which is this beautiful chapter, well known for just being this chapter full of parables. If we were studying this whole book, we would see that this teaching comes in the midst of a rise of opposition against Jesus. In chapters 11 through 12, for example, you see growing divisions among people in their attitudes about Jesus, some hearing, trusting him with a childlike faith, while many reject him, some even ramping up plots to kill him. This theme of opposition then leads us right into chapter 13, where division and the problem of how some are rejecting Jesus' message while others are responding positively, that, that, that is sitting at the forefront. Here, the parables in this chapter are often referred to as kingdom parables. Each parable focuses on the unique, unexpected way that the kingdom will grow. Or we might say they focus on understanding the different responses to the preaching of the kingdom. In this chapter, we learn that the growth of the kingdom might not meet our expectations, but indeed God's will is being worked out right on schedule. Here we see that the kingdom will grow, but at times it'll be hidden growth, and it will certainly grow in the midst of division. We'll see, for example, that there will be fruitful soil, but only in the midst of several unproductive soils. You see that in the parable of the sower that precedes this one. There will be division of good plants and weeds seen here. Moreover, those who respond positively to the preaching of the gospel, who find the gospel like a treasure hidden in a field or that pearl of great price, they're remarkable precisely because they're so different from other people. So we want to be clear up front. The purpose of this parable in the flow of this chapter, indeed in the flow of this book, is to help us manage our expectations about the kingdom and its growth. So look at the parable with me. Again, we'll start with verses 24 through 30. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Here we read, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did we not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no, 
lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus begins with the statement, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. This whole parable is being compared to the kingdom of heaven, and so I think it's important that we take at least a few minutes to consider what Matthew is referring to when he speaks of the kingdom. In all three of your synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom is arguably the most important topic in Jesus' teaching. Mark and Luke prefer the phrase the kingdom of God, whereas Matthew prefers the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a few out there who try to say these are different, but most of your synoptic scholars agree that these phrases are synonymous because when you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see that they're quoting the same thing, right? They're, they're commenting on the same stories, but Matthew inserts kingdom of heaven. More than likely, Matthew's proclivity for kingdom of heaven is because he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who struggles with using the term Yahweh or, or saying God. They prefer circumlocutions for that out of, out of reference, and so they prefer something like the kingdom of, of heaven. That said, I would take kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God to be interchangeable, to be synonymous. Still, this idea, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is, is challenging to define because it's flexible, biblically speaking. It can mean, just track with me on this because this is important to the parable, it can mean the rule of God or the realm in which he rules or both, quite frankly, depending on the context. That, that means it can be both present and future. Let me explain. More often than not in the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom referring to Jesus' rule or reign. In other words, Jesus is presented as the long-awaited eternal Davidic king who has come to rule over all things, right? We, we see John the Baptist say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe. He, he said that because King Jesus was coming, and if one wanted to enter his kingdom, he must repent and follow Jesus. In fact, it's helpful that we remember that Matthew starts his entire gospel wanting to make it crystal clear that Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king, right? Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, that is the king, son of David, the son of Abraham. So, so Jesus is the king, and he is presently ruling over his kingdom. And his message, message of the king, is the good news of the kingdom, so Matthew 4.23. He tells his people that to enter the kingdom, they must have childlike faith, and that the self-righteous and the self-sufficient will not enter. So, so here the kingdom is, is spiritual. It is one of reign. There, there, there's a spiritual kingdom, and Jesus is ruling. That's why in John 18.36, Jesus stands before Pilate, and he says what? My kingdom is not of this world. That being said, sometimes the kingdom refers to realm or place, the place in which he rules, that is, the new heaven and new earth. That, that, that idea about the kingdom becomes most complete when you get to Revelation, 
where you see that the kingdom of God is finally located in the new heaven and new earth, where God rules his people for all eternity and no rebels dwell there at all. And and in Matthew, there are actually a few places where the kingdom refers to realm, the realm in which he rules. One example is found in our text this morning, which we'll look at in a minute. But another is found in Matthew 26, verse 29, where Jesus speaks of a day where he will actually eat and drink with his people in the kingdom, obviously referring to the consummation of the kingdom, the new heaven and new earth. Of course, discussing rule or realm is closely tied to the fact that the kingdom is both present and future. The kingdom is present in that it has been inaugurated in Jesus' coming, his preaching, his miracles, his death and resurrection. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus tells the people, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 12, 28, he says, but if by the Spirit I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So so the kingdom is present. And this is very important because this is referring to his special and particular reign over his redeemed people. And thus we're exhorted to enter into the kingdom by trusting in his death for sinners like us. But this kingdom is also future, right? It will not be consummated until the end of the age when Jesus comes again and sums up all things. Now, that said, the Jews had some very specific political expectations of this kingdom, and their expectations were clearly that of realm. Thus, they were not happy at all with Jesus' teachings here. Remember, the Jews were expecting the recapitulation of the Davidic kingdom. They were waiting for one like David to come riding in on a white war horse, whopping and whooping, killing every Roman in sight, and setting up the kingdom with the capital right there in Jerusalem. This, of course, led to misunderstanding. It led to unmet expectations and thus some of the disdain that you see throughout the Gospels. The Jews were expecting a political kingdom, Whereas the kingdom Jesus ushered in was a spiritual kingdom. And this is why this parable is so important. Jesus here is dealing with expectations management for those who have ears to hear. He's just told them in the previous parable that there would be four responses to the word of the kingdom. And only one of those would actually enter into the kingdom. Therefore, Jesus uses this parable to further help us understand that the kingdom is not coming in line with popular expectations. It's coming in the midst of division, even dividing families. King Jesus is on his throne. He is, in fact, building his kingdom, but he is doing so in the midst of great opposition. And thus, this parable helps us to understand what to expect as we live in the present inaugurated kingdom. He says in the parable that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, the comparison is not between the kingdom of heaven and the man, okay? It's not between the kingdom of heaven and the man who sowed seed. The comparison is between the kingdom of heaven and the the, the whole situation described in this parable. Here we see that a man goes out and he sows good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy comes in and sows weeds or tares among the wheat. 
Now, the word translated as tares or weeds is most likely a reference to a plant known as the bearded darnel or sometimes just the darnel. Now, I know nothing about plants, so you can look at my yard and have a sense of that. But apparently, this plant is botanically close to wheat and almost impossible to distinguish between the darnel and the wheat when the plants are young. It's when the wheat begins to bear its grain, or you might say its fruit, that it becomes very obvious which is which. In verse 26, we shouldn't miss the fact that in the original, the text says that when the wheat bore fruit, the tares became obvious. This idea of knowing someone or something by their fruit is a clear teaching throughout of, of Jesus, and it's a clear teaching throughout the New Testament. So, so the two plants are virtually indistinguishable just by looks, but when they bear fruit, or a legitimate translation here is when they produce grain, then you can tell which is which. And the point here is that people are virtually indistinguishable until they bear fruit. So the enemy has come and sown the weeds in with the good seed, and the slaves come to the master and say, Lord, we know you sowed good seed into your field. What, what gives? How in the world do we have all these weeds out there? And the master rightly replies, an enemy has done this. Someone is working against us. Someone snuck in and sowed this stuff in our field. Therefore, being the good, faithful slaves that they are, they want to take care of it right then and there. And so they ask, you want us to go pull out all the darnel? And he seemingly surprises them, right? He says, no, don't separate them. He, he instructs them to allow the good seed to grow together with the bad because he doesn't want them to accidentally uproot the good plants while trying to get rid of the bad. Also, the master doesn't want them to separate them now because he's confident that these two plants can and will be sorted out at harvest with the weeds taken and thrown into the fire, and the wheat gathered and thrown into the barn. So, so this is what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. And after he tells two more parables that we obviously don't have time to dig into today, he departs from the crowds and slips away so he can privately explain this to the disciples. And that's what we get when we drop down to verse 36. Look at that with me. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. The disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here Jesus leaves the crowds and, and, and returns to the house but it would seem that he was in in verse 1 of this chapter. The house provides an opportunity for Jesus to explain the parable to his disciples in private, as well as teaching them 
a few parables that were aimed at the disciples alone found later. Once they're alone, the disciples come to him and ask him to explain this parable. And we need to understand that chapter 13 is a, is a very tightly structured unit. And while we didn't cover it, back in verses 10 through 13, Jesus had already said that his teaching in parables has to do with the doctrine of election. A lot of times it's put forward as he's the grand master teacher and these are great, you know, uh, illustrations. And there's a degree to which that's true, but Jesus himself says this is tied to the doctrine of election. Some will hear these parables and never understand them. It will seem like utter foolishness to them. And the reason, Jesus says, is because God has not given them eyes to see or ears to hear. On the other hand, some will hear and understand and rejoice. And the only difference is that God has made these things known to them in his providence. Now, I wish I could spend more time on that, but for the time being, what I do want us to notice is that this idea of election does not mean that the disciples are different from the crowds in the sense that they always have some intuitive understanding of his teachings. All you got to do is read the Gospels, and you know that's true, or that's not true. Rather, it would seem from the text that one of the ways they're distinguished from the crowds is their persistence in seeking to understand. So, so back at verse 36, we see that they left the crowds, they go into the house, and his disciples come and they ask, explain the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares. So don't miss this. Jesus' disciples, who he had told in verses 10 through 13 that it had been granted to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom, they still had to pursue his teaching. They still had to seek to understand. They still had to ask questions. They still had to interact with Jesus. Thus the disciples come to him in private and ask for an explanation, and Jesus begins to explain the parable. And in explaining the parable, he gives a little cheat sheet. He gives us seven one-to-one correspondences. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, which of course is one of the most common titles for Jesus in the Gospels. So Jesus is the one who sows the good seed, and that's important. We'll, We'll come back to that. He then tells us that the field is the world. And this little explanation is also of vital importance to this parable, and quite surprisingly, one that's often missed by interpreters. There are some who want to argue that this parable is a depiction of a mixed church. It's argued that this parable helps us to understand that there will always be believers and unbelievers in the church. And thus, we shouldn't try to judge their fruit and understand who's who. Instead, they would say that we should sit back and wait for Jesus and his angels to sort it all out in the end. Now, I would submit to you that there's a major flaw in that interpretation, and that is it completely fails to allow Jesus to interpret his own parable, right? Not to mention the fact that it fails to understand the context of the parable and the overall teaching of examining fruit throughout the scripture, No, see, Jesus is clear. The disciples come and ask him to interpret the parable, and he says, and again, we need to let him interpret his own parable, he says the field is the world, which makes it clear Jesus is talking about the fact that there will always be both believers and unbelievers living side by side in the world. He's not commenting on the church. He's not negating the idea that the church is a body of believers, 
He then goes on to say that the good seed, which are sown into the world, are the sons of the kingdom. In other words, the good seed are believers that Jesus himself has sown into the world by giving them ears to hear. He says that the bad seed are the sons of the evil one, who Jesus says is the devil. So, unbelievers are those that Satan has sown into the world, which fits Jesus' teaching elsewhere in the Gospel of John, where he calls them sons of the devil. He then makes it clear that this parable is eschatological, which is a theological term meaning pertaining to the very end. And on this point, he tells us that the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers who will gather the good and the bad out of Jesus' kingdom are angels. So, so, so there's your little cheat sheet, but, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us how it will all shake down at the very end. Just as the parable itself where the wheat and the tares are separated, wheat placed in the barn, tares burned, so also Jesus makes a point that at the end, he will send out his angels to go separate the good seed from the bad. And here the bad seed are described as those who are stumbling blocks and commit lawlessness. In other words, throughout their lives they have lived however they good and well pleased. They have lived as though God's moral standards do not apply to them. Most importantly, they've rejected God's teaching that all of us are sinners and that his only means of salvation is the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And Jesus makes it clear that such thinking and such living will only last for a time. He asserts that they will be thrown into the furnace of fire, which of course is a reference to hell, and he says that that is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, so Jesus is establishing his kingdom, and in so doing, he is separating wheat from the weeds. He's separating believer from unbeliever. And speaking of the believer, he says that after he separates the unbeliever and casts them into hell, then, he says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And in this verse, the kingdom should be understood in the sense of realm. That is, it's referring to the new heaven and new earth. And this is evident in the fact that this verse is an allusion to Daniel chapter 12. And I invite you to flip over there real quickly so you can see what I'm talking about. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3 is what Jesus is alluding to. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, so Matthew's picking up on this, saying that Jesus will separate believer from unbeliever, and believers will finally delight in the consummation of their hopes, their their. They're righteous only because they have the righteousness of Christ and they will spend eternity in the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom of their Father. Jesus then concludes his teaching by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus says this several times throughout the Gospels. And then in Revelation 2 through 3, the resurrected Jesus says the same thing. Now, the point 
in this phrase is that the simple act of hearing is not enough. It is a call to take what's heard, to comprehend it, to believe it, to live it. So Jesus gives us this parable. There will be good seed and there will be bad seed in the world. Wheat and weeds will grow together. Believers and unbelievers will live together, and in the end, they will finally be separated for all times. The main point of the parable, then, does not have anything to do with the deterioration of the church, but about our expectations of how Jesus is building his kingdom. And this is so important for us, because as we've already said, Christ's kingdom is often being built in ways that we don't expect. And it may not always make sense to us. It will grow in the midst of massive unbelief. And there will always be both believer and unbeliever living side by side to the very end. And so I want to kind of end our time thinking about seven ways this parable, I think, helps our thinking as we live between the already and the not yet, as we live between the the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom, or between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And there's so much we could say here, but I want to give seven related points I think flow from this passage. First, you, you read this, and it's readily apparent that the inaugurated kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And this makes it clear that it is remarkably misguided for Christians to expect or put their hopes in some sort of political kingdom on this earth. And unfortunately, this idea, I think, is missed big time in American Christianity. Oftentimes, we think of the kingdom of God as somehow tied to our country, our political party, or what have you. And you see this all the more with social media, where you can watch people's posts, right? Politics and God, usually in that order, giving the impression that one's hope is ultimately and finally tied up in our politics, as though Jesus' kingdom must somehow be worked out by some ungodly politician or political party so that you'd be led to believe that his kingdom is slowing down or perhaps in jeopardy of failure when a different regime comes to power. As though Jesus is unable to grow his kingdom, regardless of what feeble human beings are in power, that he created, by the way. That's obviously misguided, right? In the kingdom of God, Jesus is king, period. And he will not share his glory with the emperor of Rome in the first instance, or the the king of England, the president of the United States, or any other ruler for that matter. And the allegiance of the king's people is first and foremost to King Jesus, the high king of heaven. And we must always, 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 church, remain crystal clear on that truth. And there's a thousand more things we could say on that, save that for another sermon. But it does lead to a second point, which is this. This parable also reminds us that it is Jesus who ultimately builds his kingdom. In the explanation of the parable, Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed into the world is the son of man. So Jesus is the one who causes the growth of the kingdom. Now, of course, we know from the end of this gospel and the rest of the New Testament that he does, in fact, sow his seed 
through his people, right? Through the verbal proclamation of the gospel. That said, we must be clear. Jesus is the one building his kingdom. All we can do is enter into it and tell others how they can do the same. Another very helpful parable along these lines is Mark 4. There a man goes out and he sows seed, and he goes home and he goes to bed. And he gets up and there's this amazing crop, and the text says he has no idea how it all worked out. See, if Jesus doesn't do that work of sowing his seed into the field, nothing will grow. So, so let's be crystal clear, we do not build the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom, Jesus does. Yes, he uses us in the process, but he is the one who builds his kingdom. Which leads to a third point. This parable's purpose is to help us with our expectations of his building, of his kingdom. And we see that Jesus is teaching us that we should expect and trust Jesus with mixed results of the growth of the kingdom. And this is in no way giving us a license to be lazy in our role, right? No, we always want to be engaging in evangelism. As Christians, all of us are called to proclaim the gospel. But if we have expectations that everyone, or even most of the people we share the gospel with, are going to be converted, we're going to be highly disappointed, perhaps discouraged, maybe want to give up, or worse yet, try to manipulate things to make it look as though it's all working out the way we want. No, see, Jesus sets our expectations to help us persevere in this. This parable teaches us that we must have realistic expectations while we live our lives on mission and trust that Jesus is working out his good and divine plan. Remember the previous parable, the parable of the soils. Four different responses to the message of the gospel. Only one of them is positive. Our parable today makes it clear. Both wheat and tares are growing together. Jesus is sowing good seed through his people, proclaiming the gospel. But Satan's also out there at work. He's also out there sowing. And we must remember that. Because again, proper biblical expectations help us from getting discouraged, frustrated, burnt out in the midst of the mission because things are hard or they're not going the way that we had hoped. The Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy, preach the gospel in season and out of season. I take that to mean, at least in part, that there are times when it's sort of in season and things are happening. People are coming to faith in Christ. There's times where not as much. We're doing the same thing. The exhortation is no matter what, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And see, in that, we mustn't become discouraged. We're being taught these things because our call is to keep on keeping on. And when there's not as much happening as we'd like, that helps us to know we don't have to get cute with it, okay? We don't have to help God out. We don't need to bring in our own ingenuity, you know, maybe a rock climbing wall for the kids or, or this, that, and the other. No, we can remember, wait a minute, this is exactly how Jesus said it was going to happen. And our call is to remain faithful. And we can be confident that even though Satan is sowing weeds all over our field, Jesus is indeed sowing good seed as well. And the kingdom is, in fact, growing right in line with his plan. Might not be in line with ours, but it's right in line with his plan. And that's intimately connected to the fourth point. Here, we should expect to live 
our entire lives on this earth among unbelief, and therefore among the results of unbelief. See, this parable is making it clear we're going to live, we must expect to live, shoulder to shoulder with unbelievers. This kingdom helps us with the misguided question, if Jesus is king, why don't more people bow down to him? Well, the easy answer, the biblical answer is, because we're not in the new heaven and new earth yet, right? This struggle is what theologians refer to as over-realized eschatology. We, we, we think or act like we're in the new heaven and new earth, and we're not. We're not there yet. We must remember that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom at his first coming. And between now and his second coming, he's building his kingdom. He is preparing his bride. And until he comes again, we will live with unbelief and the fruit of unbelief every single day. Which leads to point number five. Knowing that we live among both believers and unbelievers in this world, we must truly embrace our mission that Christ has sent us on, which is to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone, right? If you remember in our parable, Jesus tells his slaves not to uproot the weeds because he was concerned that in so doing they might uproot some of the wheat. Now, this wasn't the main point of the parable, and we want to be careful here, but I do think this should serve as a reminder to us that we don't know who will and who won't ultimately come to faith. But we do know that Jesus is sowing his seed into his field, and the means by which, the ordinary means by which he does that is the verbal proclamation of the gospel by his people. Therefore, let us continue to actively share Christ, share the good news of the kingdom, trusting that Jesus is at work through that, which leads to the sixth point. As we live on mission and share the gospel, we should expect believers to bear the fruit of the kingdom. Remember, the wheat and the darnel are completely indistinguishable until fruit is born. But once there's fruit, it was abundantly obvious which plant is weed, or which plant is wheat, and which plant is the dreaded darnel. Likewise, believers should produce fruit, making it obvious that they're not weeds. And as we said earlier, this passage is not talking about a mixed church. The mix of believer and unbeliever is the, is the world. Therefore, as we're seeking to fulfill the mission of the church in making disciples, making fully devoted followers of Christ, and we're teaching them all things about Christ, we must teach them what He requires, and we must expect to see fruit of the Spirit's work in their lives. Remember, brothers and sisters, the mission of the church is not to tally hands raised, sinners' prayers prayed, or cards signed. The mission of the church is to make fully committed followers of Jesus. Therefore, if there is no fruit, we continue to engage and lovingly confront, trying to understand what's going on, because it might be that they're not yet believers. Perhaps they're interested. That's a really good thing, right? Perhaps they're seekers, but maybe not yet believers. So we must have clarity here and expect fruit distinction. Finally, closely related to our desire to share the gospel, we should expect, truly expect, and look forward to a time when Jesus will come again on that last day. 
And we must know that at that time, he will indeed finally and forever separate wheat from the tares, believer from unbeliever. And for any unbelievers here this morning, Jesus is specifically giving you a word to keep your expectations in line. For any here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ, this text holds out the reality of judgment at the end of the age. You can do all you want to create heaven on earth for a few futile years we have here. You can work real hard, get a great job, maybe you already have a great job, work real hard, climb the company ladder, get a lot of stuff, have the American dream, live it to its fullest. But see, Jesus is saying, your days, all of our days are numbered. And if we think about it, we know that's true, right? Lots of us are well past the halfway part of our lives. Many of us further than that. Judgment is coming. And for those who have never bowed the knee to King Jesus, you need to know one day you will. Only if you wait until you die, it will be too late. Jesus says that the angels will come and separate believer from unbeliever, where he uses the picture of hell, of this fire furnace, and he describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I got to say, the thought of any but spending eternity there is painful to me. So I would plead with you, turn from your sins, trust the Lord Jesus today. Judgment is real and it's coming. Please believe it and trust Christ. Don't put it off. Jesus bids all of us to listen, to try to understand, to apply his teaching. And I do the same. He who has ears, let him hear. Look to Christ, dear friend, even today. On the other hand, in that time for the believer, they can expect eternal paradise. At that time, you'll be surrounded only by those who love Jesus, his gospel. And we will be in the presence of God where there will be no more weeping, no more tears, no more relational strife, no more pain, only glory. And as believers, we must have a grand and glorious expectation of this bliss. And this expectation can be a huge blessing to us, especially when times are hard. We remember Jesus is clear. A time is coming when life as we know it is all over. And those made righteous by the righteousness of Christ will be ushered into an eternity in the new heaven and new earth, where we will shine forth as the sun. And we want to keep that in mind. We want to expect it, look forward to it. Indeed, pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let us be a church that continually proclaims these truths to any and all who will hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us who we are, who you are. We thank you for teaching us what you have done and what you're doing. Lord, we thank you for helping us to think about your kingdom in light of what we live around now. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church 
to be faithful. Help us be faithful to the mission you've called us to. And Father, we pray that you would use us, that you would be at the work of building your kingdom through us. Oh Lord, thank you for your time, for our time in your word. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.